It's always good to be with you. Uh, we thank God for gospel grace and how the Lord has used it in our personal lives, our family. We moved here six years ago. It's hard to believe. And the journey actually began in 2014 when God first brought uh, Utah to mind and asked us to begin praying about it. And we're so thankful that we're here. My wife is seated in the third row, and uh, she is uh, snuggled in between two daughters and two sons-in-law who we did not know when we moved to Utah. So that was another good gift that God gave us. And uh, we do praise the Lord for that. I um, want to give you a brief update on Gospel Hope. Uh, Will alluded to a couple of things, but we are uh, moving toward the end of a building program, adding on some much-needed space. It's primarily discipleship, um, flexible space. We dug out a deep basement. Uh, that's about 2,500 square feet, 10-foot ceiling, concrete floor, probably will be similar to this. We'll use it for all kinds of things, mostly as a uh, place to just send the children, you know, like, and they can just go crazy down there. Uh, and then on the first floor, uh, there'll be a new entryway, lots of windows and doors allowing this beautiful early morning light that we get to come in from the east side. A couple of more classrooms up top, family bathrooms, big lobby area, and uh, that's going to give us some much-needed space. But God is growing us numerically. We already feel like we're behind the game when it comes to worship space. So it's very likely that come first of the year, or at least when we are able to occupy the new part, um, we're probably moving to two services on a Sunday morning and just trusting God in all of this. Spoke with an older gentleman last night who's been coming uh, for about three years. He started coming when his wife passed away, and he, he really had no church He's come to faith in Christ in that period of time. His wife, uh, we did not know her well, but she was a, a, just a faithful woman, loved the Lord, and we believe she is with Jesus. Uh, but she left a husband behind who has come to faith in Christ. And he was telling me just last night when he gets better, he's got some physical things, but he's like, I really need to be baptized. I need to talk to you about that. So you love seeing God grow uh, his disciples, and it's a, a great privilege uh, to be a part of that. Thank you for your generous gift to us. I was mindful this morning, even as Will was uh, sharing the opportunity you have to give to Cornerstone. You guys have given so generously to Gospel Hope multiple times, but even in this last year to send us um, one, well, it was actually came in two, uh, two checks, I guess, but uh, one large, generous amount that we put toward the building effort. And it is a, it's just a grand privilege to be partnered uh, with brothers and sisters like you. So thank you for all that you're doing. Uh, last time I was here in the spring, uh, final little update I want to give you, I made reference to the fact that my wife Kristen was uh, on the front side of a um, treatment for cancer and uh, want to give you a brief update on that. Praise God, she had a six-month checkup, PET scan and all that. The PET scan shows a 50% reduction in the cancer, no new lesions. And one thing we're really excited about is that there are two uh, small spots in bones on her left side, those didn't light up this time. Now, you know, the oncologist is not going to tell you that it's gone, but we're praising God and receiving this as just evidence that he is answering prayers, and many of you have prayed faithfully for Kristen, uh, so there's a lot of good news and joy to share as we continue down this path. At Gospel Hope, we've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes this fall. And I don't know if you've spent much time in Ecclesiastes, but honestly, it can be a challenging read. Uh, it, it is really honest, brutally so, about the world we live in, the difficulties that we experience. Philip Ryken, who is both pastor and author, wrote of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. It is honest about the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, the dissatisfaction of foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. Think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. <laughs> Isn't that good? Some of you are old enough to remember the lyrics of a pop, once popular song, Rainy Days and Mondays Always Get Me Down. And you can sometimes feel that way when you read through Ecclesiastes, especially if you're you know, making your way through one of those annual Bible reads through the Bible, and sometimes you come to Ecclesiastes and you're like, oh Lord, can we just fast forward through this? It's so discouraging. 
And I'll admit, like so many others, that there are challenges in this book, but one of the things that I love about Ecclesiastes, and it's part of the thing that I love about this Christian faith that really does separate it from so many other faiths and worldviews and philosophical systems, it's willing to wrestle hard with the injustice, the oppression, the suffering, the inexplicable things that come our way and still look for those brilliant places, those spots, if you were, along this journey where the light of heaven breaks through the dark clouds of life on planet Earth and gives us a a greater perspective, and in particular, a perspective of hope. God doesn't answer all the questions. Like, he hasn't answered the question for us, why a a battle with cancer at this stage in life? but he does does give us hope that cancer will never have the final word. It doesn't determine the destiny. It doesn't even determine tomorrow because he's sovereign over it all. But God does give enough light in a book like Ecclesiastes to, 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 to birth a powerful hope and joy. Now, in the passage in front of us, we're not actually going to break into one of the most brilliant spots of sunshine, if you will, in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he just says straight up, so eat your food, drink drink your wine, dress yourself in white, enjoy the wife of your youth, because the life you have right now, yes, even with all of its inexplicable difficulty and suffering, is a gift from God. He's also reminding us that the best is yet to come. So life is a gift right now. But there's an eternal life that is to come that's even better. Now, at the end of Ecclesiastes 6, and if you want to turn there, that would be uh, a a great place to start. We're actually going to move into Ecclesiastes 7. But at the end of chapter 6, the author, and many people believe it's Solomon, he, he he identifies himself as the preacher. So we'll stick with that. But at the end of Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 12, the preacher says, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Those are questions all of us are asking. And the truth of the matter is we don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming in the next hour, let alone what might happen in this world after we've lived out our days. That's knowledge and understanding that is hidden from us. And that's what the preacher is straining to see. And and as he strains to see any good in this short life of hardship and suffering, he actually helps us to see that there really is good in this life to be found, good that we should savor moment by moment, and good that we should even share with others. But he also hints at the fact in chapter 7, as we'll see in just a moment, that for God-fearers, the best things are yet to come. So if you're just living for the now, your long vision is too short. The great horizon uh, of your life is too near. There's actually something beyond what you see at the moment and are living for. And so the preacher proceeds to answer the two questions of chapter 6, verse 12, with a series of comparisons, saying repeatedly, This is better than that. And then he gives a brief statement about what might come to be after us. And I think he, he, he paves the way for great hope. Now I want you to follow along as I read through Ecclesiastes 7 beginning in verse 1, and we're actually going to read through verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit." Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me for just one moment? Holy Spirit, how we thank you for the gift that you are. We believe and affirm this morning the words of our Lord that it was better for him to depart because if he did not depart, you would not come. But he did depart and you have come. And how much we need you. We need your presence to illuminate the next step or two on the path of life. We need you by your divine power to illuminate this word to our minds that we might believe it. To our wills that we might obey it. To our very souls that we might be transformed by it. And so I ask, dear Spirit of God, that in these next few minutes we have together, you would do all your holy will. And we pray in the name of the one who has saved us, the Lord Jesus, the Christ. Amen. The preacher's making a big point that there are some things better than others in life. And there's a series of at least seven comparisons in this passage Uh, And it's interesting that these comparisons are not just uh, this is a good thing and this is a bad thing, but he actually sets out some good things, but then shows us a better thing. The good things that are mentioned in those first several verses are precious ointment because it has both aesthetic value and monetary value. He mentions the day of birth. That's a good thing. Our family is anticipating November 30th because that is the, the due date for the first grandbaby. That's a big deal. It's going to be a good day. He mentions the house of feasting. That's a good thing. Laughter, it's a good thing. The beginning of a thing, it's a good thing. But he does mention a a couple of things that we might say are evil. And for instance, the song of fools in verse 5. What's Solomon's point? Well, there are good things in the world, and there are better things that God's people really need to set their hearts on. Now, it seems almost contradictory contradictory that he would begin in verse 1 if if you look at the couple of things that he is saying there I want to I want to I want to kind of summarize it with this first idea funerals are better than parties now you read it but do you really believe that because I'm not sure I do why would they be better than parties well in the first place funerals remind us of the value of life's legacy Look at verse 1 with me and notice, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. I think he is bringing these two kind of proverbial statements together to get us to think a little deeper. What is a good name? Well, we might think of that as your personal legacy. It's better than precious ointment. And again, in that day and age, precious ointment had great value, not just for the fragrance that it would emit, Uh, in houses and in settings where there were lots of other competing odors, many of which were not pleasant. But it also had monetary value. And the day of death, how could that be better than the day of birth? Well, that can only be true if we're talking about the legacy of a life well lived. About 10 years ago, Colleen Ritzer, who was a teacher at Danvers High School in Massachusetts, was brutally murdered by one of her 14-year-old students. It was a story that captured the attention of the nation for a number of weeks. And the great tragedy of this committed teacher being lost 
in such horrific circumstances brought everybody to a sobering point of consideration. At her funeral, the, the reverend who officiated made what I think is a really wise statement, offering advice on how to approach this dear teacher's death. And he said, perhaps we should ask not why or even how she died, but rather why and how she lived. That's the point that the preacher in Ecclesiastes is making. I pause for a moment to ask, you know, what's your big why? You hear that frequently, whether it be in books on business development or leadership or, or, or personal coaching. What's your big why? What is your legacy? Are you living the kind of life that when it has run its course will have a lingering influence like that of costly perfume as it spreads its fragrance beyond where it is applied? Will there be a good name left behind you that people would say, what a gift that individual was to us? And will God himself look over the span of your life and say, well done? At the moment, people are desperate for a great cause to embrace, many people feel the emptiness of their life. We know, we know that just living, you know, for more stuff, more experiences, is not really what we're created for. And so we see all kinds of causes emerge. It's always been that way. I can remember from the time I was a kid Hearing, save the planet, save the whales, save the polar bears, save the Great Salt Lake, protect free speech, protect human rights, champion the cause of the oppressed, and, and let's battle injustice. All of those are actually worthy causes, but they're not ultimate causes. In and of themselves, they don't have the power to sustain your life to the very end. Many people have never wrestled with the fact that they have been given life by a creator and the first great cause that you must discover is that you were created to know him and to be loved by him and to reciprocate that love in loving him. And I wonder if for some of you this morning, that may be the great missing ingredient in your soul this morning. We need to listen to the words of this wise preacher. When Jesus spoke in the Gospels, there is a reflection of a similar thought, but he, he expressed uh, the importance of living your life well when he said, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet, in the end, to lose his soul? Have you answered that question wisely? Well, let's look again at the text Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, he goes on to say, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Here's, here's big thought number two. F funerals not only remind us of the value of, of life's legacy, they remind us of life's brevi brevity. Life is short. Death is final. This is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Now, this is a strange thought. Press on with me. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Well, the sadness we experience while mourning the death of a relative or friend should result in our wise living. When you attend a funeral, it's an opportunity to do a little self-assessment. You ever sit there and wonder, what will people say about me at my funeral? Well, you can do that in a self-centered way, or you can do it in a wise way. How am I living? What kind of relationships am I building? Where am I investing my precious time, my precious resources? I pastored for many years in South Carolina before we moved to Utah, and it was a church that was quite a bit larger than what Gospel Hope is, and so we actually had more funerals. And I got to know several funeral directors really well, and there was one that I would say is probably my favorite. I kind of lost track of him. His name is Jerry. I mean, just a colorful character. Grew up in the deep south, if you know what I mean. So he was a bit of a country boy, and he talked, you know, with that good southern country accent. And we were riding out to a cemetery one day for the committal service, because often the funeral directors would say, hey, Pastor Brooks, you want to ride with me? And I always wanted to ride with Jerry, because he could tell great stories. 
But I asked him, Jerry, hey, how did you end up doing this? Because to be really honest, it seems odd to me that anyone would want to make their living hanging out with dead people, you know, all day long and families that are grieving. I mean, it's got to be a heavy thing. And he, he actually said that as a child, he watched his grandmother and in this, you know, more remote community serve so many people in the time of death. She was the woman that the community would come to uh, to help prepare the body uh, of the, the loved one, and she would make all the arrangements for the wake and even be there for the funeral itself. And he said, I saw the kind of ministry that my grandmother had to grieving families, and I said, God, if it would please you, I would love to serve families in a similar way. And I thought, well, that, that's beautiful. But I also love to ask him about some of the stories, and he told me one of the most humorous. Now, it's, it's dark humor, I'll admit that to you. But you have to, you have to laugh at life, right? I said, Jerry, what's one of the funniest things that's ever happened to you? And he goes, oh, Brother Danny. Because <laughs> we had a funeral one time, and the service was long, three hours of singing and preaching and praying and weeping. And when we finished the service and we were bringing the casket out of the church and down those beautiful front steps and we were going to go across, they had a little cemetery um, in the, on the church property. He said, would you believe that as the pallbearers carried the casket down the front steps, the bottom of the casket turned loose and the body of the deceased fell to the ground? <laughs> and I said, Jerry... What did you do? Well, what can you do but try to put things back together as best you can? And then, you know, almost, you know, like embarrassed to say it, but still he's like, and she was a large woman. <laughs> you know, it's hard to laugh in the face of death unless you're sure death doesn't have the final word. And I do not mean to make fun of anybody's sorrow. I have a brother-in-law whose mother passed away just yesterday. But here's the difference for followers of Jesus. We sorrow deeply. Just as Jesus stood at the tomb of a friend who had died, a friend he knew he would raise in a matter of minutes, and before he raised him from the dead, he wept. Oh, we sorrow, but with hope. That's why it's really important for us to remember life is short and death is final. Funerals are better than parties. Here's big point number two. Look at verses five through seven. Rebuke is better than entertainment. Rebuke is better than entertainment. A wise man will unveil the realities of life, the preacher is telling us. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. You know, rebuke is a correction. It may include a warning. It may include a caution. It may be a bit of a, an alarm that sounded in the middle of a situation. The Lord tells us in many places, and Proverbs is full of passages like this. Proverbs 13, 1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. It doesn't tell us why a scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke, but a scoffer is a person who would actually hear that correction, that word of warning, that sound of alarm, and make fun of it, turn it into a joke or attack the messenger, discrediting the rebuke. But God tells us that the rebuke of a wise man is something of great value. Now, it's contrasted here in this passage, look at the end of verse 4, with a foolish friend. And a foolish friend will mask the reality of life. How does a foolish friend do that? Well, first of all, his heart is set on trivialities. Look at the end of verse 4. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And the house of mirth is just representative of extravagant partying. And the song of fools in verse 5 is a song with no substance. It may not be an inherently immoral song, but there's no spiritual weight to it. As one author writes, the song of fools, if not immoral, yet morally and spiritually hollow, senseless, and unbridled madness. 
And so the fool is a, an individual who's not really interested in the realities of life. As a matter of fact, who devotes himself uh, to enterta- being entertained with those things that are lacking long-term significance. And I think that may be part of the illustration of the crackling of thorns under a pot. If any of you are outdoors people, whether you camp or backpack or just like to hang out in your backyard building a fire, you can get a fire built in a hurry with a, a, a fistful of pine needles, but that fire is not going to sustain anything. And you're never going to cook over pine needles. Well, crackling thorns are similar. They'll ignite in a hurry and give you a burst of warmth, but there's not going to be a long-term benefit provided, whether by heat or for cooking purposes. And the fool's laughter has as much substance in it as those flames made from thorns. Rebuke is better than trivial entertainment. Now go to verse 8 with me, and here's big point number three. The long view of wisdom is better than the limited view of human understanding. And we need to build this out a little bit. So look at verse 8 with me, first of all. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I think what the preacher is pointing us to here in the first place is that wisdom knows to patiently wait for God to write the whole story. And God's stories always have good endings. Always have good endings for people of faith. So that's why the preacher would say, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. You know, it's human nature to rush to judgment about stuff, isn't it? Have you ever watched a movie with someone who isn't patient enough to let the story play out and just see how it will end? And they ask questions that will certainly be answered in time, but they keep interrupting everybody else around them, you know, asking, well, what's he doing that for? And and why did she just say that? And that doesn't make any sense to me. Do you know how this will end? It's like, you know, if you'd be quiet and watch to the end, we'll all know how it will end. And the preacher is saying the patient in spirit are those who have learned to wait for the full story to unfold. And notice this, in contrast to that, the proud in spirit are those who grow angry and impatient in the middle of the story. Now think of the stories in the Bible. Many of them hard, raw, difficult to fully understand, and think of how many of them transpire over years and even decades. And very often the people in these stories have to wait for God's full work to unfold before they experience the promised good. He promised the good, and yet he makes them wait. Probably at the top of this list would be Abraham and Sarah, who had to wait 25 years for the son of promise. They took matters into their own hands at one point, and oh, there was a son born into the household, but as Paul describes in Galatians, it was the son of a slave. It wasn't the promised son. And then even after 25 years, when it was humanly impossible for them to conceive, the miracle baby Isaac is is born, but just one. And the promise that God gave to Abraham decades before was that their descendants would be like the stars of the heaven or the sand that's on the sea. God, what gives? Well, God knew that they could not fully understand the scope of his story. And he was content to leave them with a number of questions, but there he was working. You think of Joseph who had to endure 13 years of unjust suffering before God exalted him to a position of power and influence that would ultimately result in the salvation of his entire family who had roundly abused him. You think of Hannah who was childless for many years and the object of scorn of her husband's second wife and yet in time God gave her Samuel. Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless until God gave them John. We know him as John the Baptist, but he was the son of their old age. Anna was a widow for many years, seeming, the way the story reads, losing her husband after only seven years of marriage, but living in obscurity, serving in obscurity in the temple by daily fastings and prayers, and yet in her 84th year of life, she sees the Christ child. The woman with the issue of blood, suffering for 12 years, spending everything that she had looking for a cure. And yet one day Jesus stepped into her path and she was healed. Wisdom knows 
even based on these stories and many others, that God is writing a story that leads to good. And wisdom knows that the end of a thing is better than its beginning when it is God's thing. Here's a second thought for you regarding the long view of wisdom. Look at verse 9. Wisdom guards against anger with God while in the middle of the story. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. In context, it seems that this anger has to do with the circumstances that an individual is experiencing. Things are just not working out the way that we planned. And look at this phrase, anger lodges in the heart of fools. And it's, while we take that terminology out of the old Hebrew and try to bring it into the English, we could also expand the thought of anger to include things like vexation and feelings of anxiety and strong displeasure and frustration. Wisdom guards against anger. You know, sometimes you're in a situation where you've been praying and even seeking to follow God and circumstances turn in a very difficult way and you actually want to, you know, give God a few of your thoughts. And, you know, isn't it beautiful that the Psalms are full of passages where people do exactly that? God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? How come you're not answering my prayers? So you can be honest with God in that way, but there's a difference between just pouring it all out and genuinely being angry with God where you withdraw from him and you say, well, if if he's not going to act, then I'm going to figure it out on my own. Wisdom guards against that anger. Here's the third thought. Wisdom refuses nostalgic discontentment with God while living through the hard circumstances of the story. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. I love the words of a 19th century author and commentator on this passage who writes, finding fault with the present and a one-sided praise of past times is a well-known characteristic of peevish and fretful dispositions. That sounds like something a Jane Austen character might have said, right? It's true. We need to be really careful that we don't find fault with the present circumstances we're in, even comparing them uh, to the pastimes that were better. God's not quarreling, and God's not trying to say, no, today are the best days of your life. You know what? Today may actually be the hardest day of your life. But what human understanding and perspective limits you to, and, and, and even it's... It's just some of the inherent weakness of, of who we are. It, it prohibits us from seeing the very end. And in the same way that Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Hannah and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and the woman uh, who was disabled through this bleeding issue, they, they could not even begin to anticipate that in a moment God would arrive and their stories would turn. Dear friend, if you are in a hard season or moment that is actually evoking this kind of discontentment in your heart, oh, lay it down. You're not wise enough or strong enough to write a good ending for your story, but God in heaven is. Now in the last little portion, and this really to me is the best part, You look at verse 11 now. Let's consider the wisdom and the work of God. I'm actually going to skip over verses 11 and 12 for for the sake of time. But notice that just very briefly, God's wisdom does bring great advantage to life. There's profit in wisdom, verse 11. There's protection in wisdom, verse 12. And even a preservation. I'll, I'll let you work that out on your own. But go to verse 13 and notice that God's work is often mysterious to us, unknown, inscrutable, number of words we could use there. It's often mysterious to us, but we may fully trust him to do his work. Now look at verse 13. This is a strong word. Consider the work of God. What are we to consider? Well, in the first place, this question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? The preacher is inviting us to just exercise the, the, the eyes of our hearts, if you will. Use your capacity to see 
what God is doing in order that you could make an assessment, make it a judgment about what God is up to. That's why the stories are in the Bible, and that's why you need to read them, ponder them, meditate upon them. That's why you need to find yourself in those stories. And you know, God never writes a story, really, where the human individual is the hero. Now, they do amazing things, and sometimes there are heroic acts and heroic moments of faith, but that heroism at the human level is only true and real because God in his great sovereignty and goodness and kindness and power works in such a way where he's rescuing, he's delivering, he's reconciling, he's miraculously healing. God's the hero of the Bible. preacher asks a really important question though who can make straight what he has made crooked the crooked things are the things in life that we wish desperately were different things like childlessness things like physical suffering and chronic illness things like those traumatic events that really do kind of disable our souls and disintegrate our identity, death itself. It is true on one hand that all of these crooked things are consequences of humanity's sin. God tells us straight up, through Adam, sin entered the world And when Adam sinned, death spread to all people. You say, that's not fair. You're right, it's not. Sin always has unfair consequences. But there's another great act that in a similar sense is not fair. And it has transformed something. We'll get to that in just a moment. So it's true that all of these are the consequences of sin, but it's God who actually created the consequences And similar to the stories of those who had to wait for the good end of their stories to come, so there are many stories of people's lives who were made crooked for a greater purpose. You say, really? Yeah, turn to John 9. The Gospel of John, that's a New Testament letter. If you go to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, then you'll come to John. Not the John who was born to Zachariah and Elizabeth. For some of you would say, didn't you talk about a John earlier? Yep, This this is the Apostle John. And in John chapter 9... He records the story for us of how Jesus with his disciples were continuing, you know, an ordinary day, so to speak, and they encounter a man who was born blind. And look at what question uh, it, it provokes from the disciples. They ask Jesus, very simply, who sinned, this man or his parents? That's a reasonable question, especially in a religious environment uh, such as Israel was in that particular day, because there are many religions in the world today where, you know, there's a direct cause and effect. You do good, God gives you good. You do bad, God brings bad. And that'd be another discussion. There is some truth in that, but, but the Christian faith is not simply a transactional thing between you and God at all moments. That's why you can't earn your forgiveness. You can't earn the gift of eternal life. You can't earn salvation. But look at Jesus' answer. Verse three, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now the preacher back in Ecclesiastes has said, consider the work of God. This is stout truth. I'm not gonna lie to you. Some of this is hard to chew and harder to swallow. Are we saying that God made this man blind? In one sense, that's how it reads, doesn't it? What we can rule out is that God was just mean and upset and kind of angry with this man or his parents one day and said, you know what, I don't like you, boom, blindness to you. It's a crooked thing. I wonder how many times this man himself prayed that God would give him sight. How many times had he wrestled with the fact that he could not see the world he was a part of? 
How many prayers and conversations do you think his dear parents had, especially when he was an infant, recognizing there's something wrong with our child? The sorrow that a mother would have that her little boy would never see the beauty around him, would never see her face. The specific work of God that was about to be displayed was nothing than a miraculous straightening of a really difficult, crooked thing. But on this day, Jesus arrived. And dispelling the wrong religious conclusions of self-righteousness, I mean, that's human nature on display right there, he stands before this man and, and makes a most uh, uncommon ointment and then sends the man on his way that the miracle may be confirmed. It's a staggering miracle, a staggering straightening, if you will, and it's hung against the backdrop of an exceptionally difficult, crooked thing. You and I may not be able to straighten what has been made crooked through no fault of our own. But God Almighty has the power. And God Almighty has a plan that one day all crooked things for his people will be straightened. You know, there's no path in human history made more crooked by the sovereign hand of God. than the path of Jesus. It was a path that led him out of the glories of heaven into the womb of a young woman, the God of the universe, a humbled zygote, if you will, in time born. You know the story, we're gonna celebrate it in just a few more weeks made in a, laid in a, a makeshift cradle, grew up in obscurity, in poverty, emerged at the right time and gathers a ragamuffin band of disciples around him and begins to teach them and they recognize the authority from on high, but it's not visible in his person. Isaiah had written many, many years before that this Messiah would grow up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, wouldn't you think that when God sends his one-of-a-kind son into the world, he would be the most glorious and beautiful human specimen ever created? Some of you would say, yeah, a Chris Hemsworth type of character. Like, that would make sense. A Thor-like figure, chiseled, strong. The testimony of the scriptures, though, is that Jesus was so ordinary in, in his human appearance that if we passed him on the sidewalk later today, we wouldn't even give him a second look. So ordinary, just kind of blended in. And yet Isaiah goes on to say that in that state of humility, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That is, we, we had no regard for him. And yet God's crooked path took this perfect savior not only through a life that was largely ignored, for a brief season, seemed to like capture the attention, at least of the Middle Eastern world. But the path wound its way to the cross. And in Isaiah 53, verse 4, Isaiah explains to us exactly what was happening there. For the prophet says, Surely, certainly, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That is, we as, our initial assessment of, of this man on the cross is he must have done something really bad to deserve that. 
Because after all, right, bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. Who sinned? This man or his parents? Oh, but that is a gross misunderstanding of what was transpiring at the cross. Isaiah continues, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the severe discipline that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to his own way. Yet the Lord on high laid on his one-of-a-kind son the iniquity of us all. Oh, what a crooked path. What a crooked act of justice. The innocent dying for the guilty. The Lord of glory mocked and insulted and spit upon. what the disciples could not anticipate on that Friday afternoon, even though Jesus had predicted it and prophesied it multiple times, was that he would go into that grave, truly dead, on Friday, but Sunday morning before dawn, God Almighty would straighten a path. And what had been made crooked that no other person could straighten, God himself did. And Jesus rose from the dead, the signal that all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt had been truly removed in that mighty act of cruelty and death on Friday. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Only God. And the cross becomes a powerful and definitive statement of hope-giving truth for those of you who crawl through the darkness of this moment, desperate, crying out to God, feeling that he does not hear you. And you, like Jesus on the cross, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer also comes from the cross to you in this moment. Very quickly, back in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 14, the preacher says, in days of prosperity, we should be joyful. In days of adversity, we should be thoughtful. Why? Because God has made one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. There are many things that remain unanswered, but there are some things that become clear and true and powerful. Joy giving in every day of your life, whether prosperity or adversity. The last passage I actually want to take you to that to me just kind of wraps up some of the things that that the preacher, Solomon, was struggling with in Ecclesiastes 7 is Romans 8. Turn there with me, please. Because I want you to see how Paul works through the really difficult things, the crooked things of life. If Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes, he had not been given these specific revelations concerning the Christ, but Paul knew them. And we can know them too. In Romans 8, verse 28, he writes, this is such a, an audacious thing to say, especially to those who suffer in such deepness and darkness. We know, Paul says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's ridiculous, Paul. How could the destruction of my marriage the destruction of my faith, the destruction of my health, the loss of my family, the loss of my business. How could any of that be redeemed, restored? How could any good come from that? Well, hang on. Watch how he argues. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Oh, there's, there's a great purpose. It's not ultimately about saving your business or your relationships, or even your marriage. It's actually about conformity to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Jesus is going to have his family. And despite your suffering, you're going to be there with him. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is often referred to as that golden chain of salvation. And it's an unbreakable chain. But continue reading. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding or praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, and let me insert the thought from Ecclesiastes, shall crooked things like tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all the crooked things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, and, and this whole list is of extremes, death nor life, angels nor rulers, and those are probably demonic forces in the cosmos, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can you be sure of that? Because there is a cross and an empty tomb, a crooked path where Jesus took your sin, and a straight path from the tomb to glory. And he offers it to you and offers it to me. Oh, beloved, take heart. Take heart. It is terrifying at the moment for many of us. It is scary. It is overwhelming. We feel like we may not survive another 24 hours, let alone another 24 years or whatever the timeline is for us, but God has you. He's good and he's great. And the cross is the proof. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Give us grace to believe your word, please. Oh, how I pray that for those who find themselves in a really deep, dark, hard, crooked place, that you would give them hope. Take them to the foot of the cross where their Savior bled and died, that they might be delivered eternally. Take them to the empty tomb that by faith they may say, he is not here, he is risen. Take them into your arms that they may have full confidence today that though they have no power to straighten the crooked thing that they are experiencing this moment, you do and you will. These things we pray in the holy name of the Holy One, our King.